Amen. Thanks, Miss Christie. Good morning. Glad you're here. Do I want some tickets? No. I was thinking of SNH green stamps. <laughs> I was old enough to remember that, right? Welcome those of you watching live stream. A special shout out to my buddy Mac Purefoy in Temple, Texas. Mac and I were college roommates, and he said this morning, Are you going to be live streaming? And I said, Just for you. We're glad you're here, and uh, we're so appreciative of all the men and women in the back who are making the live stream possible. Paul and Michelle. Reeves do an incredible job for us week by week, and all their volunteers back there working cameras and YouTube stream, and it takes a lot of people to make this happen. It's easy for you perhaps to click on your laptop, your computer, your tablet, whatever you do, but it takes a lot of, of folks that know a lot of things to make it happen, so we're so grateful for you being here. Uh, we talked last Sunday about Ron Dunn braving the rain. Will you brave the slush? <laughs> Nothing to it, right? What's the big deal, right? Just weather. I'm glad you're here. Um, let me pray. Father, it is a delight when people, your people, your church, the people of God can assemble, open your word. We can pray. We can look to scripture. We can sing songs of faith and proclamation. We can, um, without fear or persecution, come into this room or log on. It is a privilege that much of the world does not have. May we not take it for granted or assume it will always be available, but we are so grateful that you allow us the freedom to do it. We thank you for your word, that it is true, that it is not what you would say if you were here, but what you are saying because you are here. We thank you for your spirit that indwells the believer to help us to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ and less and less away from our sinful selves. Help us to understand, to make good choices, to affirm our faith through your word, and that we know, that we know, that we know our right standing before God. May we not fool around in the things of God. May we not toy with your word. May we not make light of that which you died for. But may we, in all sobriety and seriousness, in uh, good faith, open your text, read it, try to understand it at the time it was penned, to whom it was written, and how it continues to apply even to this day. We thank you for such an extraordinary privilege. The most important audience on the planet are those who assemble to worship you, no matter where they are. So we thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. In the context of this little letter to the Philippians, Paul's written, I'm just going to jump right into the text. There's an independent clause in chapter 3, verse 3. And I want to go back and just show you that one verse we looked at last week to tie together. If you look at it on screen or in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 3 of Philippians, for we are the true. And you remember I mentioned true was not in the original text. That word's added there because he's contrasting it to the false circumcision, which was what? A mutilation. So he's saying, the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what I want you to see. Paul's saying, we're not putting any confidence in this fleshly body we have. And that ties very importantly into the next section, which is a new sentence in your, in your Bible in verses 4 through 9. Let me jump into chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Although I myself might have confidence, so you're seeing the word confidence the second time, might have confidence 
even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, when it, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul is setting up a, an argument here that takes a little bit of time to understand what he's doing to the Philippians and then how we read this and what he is arguing about here. And to sum it up simply, he's warning against any kind of self-confidence. Now, in his situation, he wasn't just measuring his tickets or accomplishments. There's a lot more going on, but that's a good way of illustrating the tension. Three times in chapter 3, verse 2, he said, beware. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, and the false teachers. And we talked last Sunday about there is evil. Information that infiltrates the church that is not from the text is not just a difference of opinion, it's evil. These are workers of evil. It's false. And this false circumcision was a, a mockery of what they were doing to make themselves good before God. He said, you're mutilating the flesh for no reason, and it's an abomination. So three times we said, beware, beware, beware. Then he watched the repetitions, confidence. Three times we read of confidence. So he's got an argument here. By the way, I, I was reading through this this, morning, uh, this, this past week. And it struck me afresh again. Uh, I know not all of us like literature, not all people like to read, and I understand that there are certain people that, you know, they do better in different areas. Reading is an interesting wiring for our brains. But the more I read the Bible, the more blown away I am that anyone would think this is a human book. It's just, it's just too amazing. It's too complex in a way of layer upon layer upon layer it just blows my mind that someone says, well, it's just put together by a bunch of people. As a friend of mine says, that's, you're weak, you need a psychological crutch. If that's true, I'll lean on the crutch. But the Word of God is unfathomable. And when I see what Paul perhaps wrote out in some matter of hours and scrolled up and sent to the churches in Philippians, that the Holy Spirit is superintending how he writes this stuff. It just boggles my mind. Okay, it's all for free. Anyway. Three times beware, three times confidence, and I want to unpack this confidence a little bit. Because what he's doing, he's saying, if you want to brag about being good before God, if you have a standing before God, let me show you what that really looks like. And he's going to use himself as an example to show them how wrong they are. And then he's going to flip it on their heads. There's five areas that he talks about confidence. The first one he says, I far more. The first one is confidence in circumcision. We spoke of this last time. It's a strange thing to talk about, but it's simply setting apart God's people. And what he's saying with this eighth day is, um, I, I didn't come to Judaism later in life. I wasn't an adult convert. I was raised in a pious Jewish family that took this seriously, and I was circumcised according to the law of Moses on the eighth day. Secondly, confidence in nationalism. We need to, you know, patriotism today is such a vitriolic and confused topic. We talk about, are you a patriot? I'm patriotic. You have a flag or don't have a flag. It's all this nonsense that we get pulled into, and social media does not help the matter. But we need to go back in time and understand a theocracy. 
A theocracy was when the government and the leadership were one thing. So the government, in this case, is religious. Um, To use a bad example, Islam is a theocracy. Islam, as a religion, is the government. In Judaism, they weren't supposed to have a king. They were supposed to trust in God before God allows them to have kings and the monarchy and the divided monarchy and so forth. But God was to be their king. That was a theocracy. You're to worship God. God is, we might say, the government. We're a far cry from that in any culture today. But Paul is saying, I have a confidence in my nationalism that none of you understand and none of you come close to it. It pales with your experience. He goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the so-called patriarchs. He says, I'm attached to that. This doesn't just bleed red, white, and blue when I'm cut. This bleeds God. This bleeds Judaism. This bleeds chosen people. Um, It's hard to understand if you have been enamored by um, these Downton Abbey and the precursor upstairs, downstairs, the novel written years ago, uh, born into royalty vis-a-vis born into service. You're not going to be part of a monarchy if you aren't born into it. And for whatever reason, the tabloids will never stop following these wannabe princes and princesses and dukes and duchesses and God help them all. But this is far more significant. The nationalism that Paul is talking about outstrips any illustration that you and I would have in our current nomenclature. We don't understand. He says, I've got a proper standing before God and you don't. I was born into this. I'm a Jew's Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, We get confused by the way the world uses the term race. And it's typically in racial differentiation. And in some circles, race can only apply to African Americans. In others, it can apply variously. It's a very complicated subject in this vitriolic culture where everybody's woke and crazy. Um, There's no race in God's worldview. There's humanity. That's it. But anyone who has been born into a nationality or a skin color or a lineage, we identify with that. And every one of those cultures, no matter how oppressed they have been, they have also been oppressors throughout history. We forget all this. Paul is thinking way beyond that. We might say he was a scholar, he was fluent in language, he was pedigreed, he was an academic, he was under Gamaliel, he was a brilliant legal scholar, he was a nationalist. Third, he has confidence in his religiousness. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. What he's saying here is when it comes to following the legal aspects of the word of God, I taught at Harvard, Yale, I started all law schools. That's kind of what he's intimating here. I was a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee's Pharisee, he might have added. And there's no one who can compete with that. He, might, he would refer to all these young people, and there's a little bit of wordplay here, um, that he's, basically he could dance around them as a Jew intellectually. Fourth, his confidence in personal accomplishments. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Um, no matter what opponents would throw at him, Paul could say, you know, you're attacking me. You're attacking what I do as a Judaizer. You're enforcing the law on people. Listen, I endorsed killing Christians before you were born. 
when it comes to persecution, when it comes to zeal, I win hands down. None of you have done what I have done, you might say. Um, if you've been around men and women in the military, there's a phrase called dirty boots. And many of the men and women in the uniform uh, did not serve in a combat area or have not served in a combat area. Their whole career may have been during a peacetime endeavor. And so we said, well, they never had dirty boots. And that was historically a big issue when it came to appointing admirals and generals, even in the political world. If you didn't have dirty boots, we're not going to consider you for office. Well, that, of course, is a different place in time. Paul is saying that the rest of you, when it comes to persecution, you're a bunch of schmeels. I win in this category as well. Finally, confidence in his personal righteousness. And he writes, as to righteousness, found blameless. Now, when a Jew heard that, they would probably recoil and then be really angry. But he's just laid out his credentials, and it's sort of like, find something on me. I dare you to go find where I wasn't a Jew's Jew, a Hebrew, Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin. My lineage is far better than you. And then by the time we get to Romans 7, he dismantles it all. He says, I was a wretch sinner. And nothing in my past, nothing in my pedigree could make me good. You know, it doesn't take a lot of time or real deep thought to see. We all have penchants to look at our past and our accomplishments and to be a little proud. Some of us might not be so given to it, but some of us in this room, myself included, can be guilty of going, well, look what I've done. Look where I've been. We, we can smell that sometimes. We don't typically like it. But aside from the PR aspect of it, what are we doing when we're congratulating ourselves? I've done this. I've been there. I accomplished this. Um, you know, God sees no color when it comes to sin. He just sees red. From Abel's blood to his own son's blood. Doesn't matter what nationality, doesn't matter what religiosity, doesn't matter your credentials, doesn't matter what school you did or didn't go to. He sees no color but sin. And that sin is only solved in one person. Paul is clear. If anyone could claim confidence in the flesh, Paul is going to win this argument. If you want to look at my record, if you want to call me unimpeachable, go right ahead, take a look at it, and you'll find out what I'm arguing is true. You can't put a finger on me. You can't touch who I am. Now, he's using this self-confidence to make a point. He's already warned against false teaching that is a disease in the church, and now he's talking about false confidence. You put your confidence in your accomplishments, you're putting them in the wrong place. Paul is saying, uh, I could put my accomplishments there, but I'm not going to. I'm going to show you how wrong you are about me, and more importantly, how wrong you are about yourself. It's not what Paul has done, but what Christ has accomplished. He doesn't care about your accolades. Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count 
all things to be lost. Second time he's using this phrase. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness by my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. If we can go back one slide for just a moment, I want to show verse 7 and the second panel. Notice he says, whatever things were of gain. See that word? Whatever things were of gain to me. And three times he talks about loss. And the next slide, please. And then he'll say again, whatever gain. See the parallel? So this was the, whatever I counted was gain, I'm going to set it all aside so that I can gain Christ. That's the framework you need to keep in mind. So first of all, warnings about self-confidence. And now he's moving in argument to say, look, all things are lost, if you understand this correctly, but you've gained everything. You need to set aside anything you're putting your faith, your trust, your confidence, your accomplishments in. You need to sweep that aside and understand you've gained everything, if you understand who Christ is. Paul's superior status is... A blanket statement dismantles theirs. I mean, who can compete with this? This would be like going to the department chair of whatever school you went to, whatever your education or background, the greatest musician of all time that you esteem. Um, I have friends that know Ricky Skaggs very well. Some of you know Ricky. And I have a friend who plays mandolin, and he says, when I watch Ricky play, I don't know what to do. I don't, the guy is flawless. He, he never makes a mistake. I've told the story many times. Our church, we were uh, privileged to be a part of in D.C. There was a trumpet player named Charlie Peterson. I nicknamed him Cleanhead Peterson. Trumpet, trumpet players, when they make a mistake, everybody hears it, right? You can't hide as a trumpet player. He never made a mistake. A friend of mine, Jim McKay, played in the orchestra, and he was a trumpet player. And he said, when I hear Charlie Peterson play the trumpet, I want to take mine home and turn it into a lamp. <laughs> there are always going to be people that are going to have accomplishments that far outstrip us. And we're going to look at them and cover our mouths and go, oh, my word. Paul is saying, brush it aside. Throw it away. Because I'm going to show you what real gain is. I'm going to show you what really matters. John Walford writes, his, all his claims to human attainment were destroyed on the road to Damascus 30 years before. I love that observation. Here he is, the top of his game, persecuting for the Jewish synagogues in Jerusalem, and he's struck blind, and three days later, a prophet shows up and prays with him, and Saul becomes Paul, and for years, he has to sort of sequester himself and learn what God is going to do with this guy who was once the top. He, he was, you know, the president of Gamaliel Law School, if you will. And now he's nothing. And he's going to tell us all of this doesn't matter. Whatever things were gained to me, I count them as loss. In chapter 121, uh, Paul tipped his hand on this argument when he said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Same word. 
That's the ultimate giving everything up to die, and he sees that as gain, not as loss. Gain and loss stand in opposition in this little letter and in this paragraph. When Paul met Christ, everything stripped away from him. His entourage is gone. Um, he's not the superhuman people, person that he wanted to be or people thought he was. Notice he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He, he did not take this lightly. He's not saying, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. I lost those things. He suffered loss. And you recall, I mention it every time, most times I talk about Paul, when he is chosen and, and asked the prophet, has to go give him the news. And Ananias is a little bit terrified to go talk to Saul of Tarsus. And he says, go, for I will show him, what does he say? How much he must suffer for my name's sake. How about that for a mission statement? No one wants that. When Paul met Christ, everything stripped away. And he says, it's nothing. I counted as loss. Yeah, I suffered loss. But it doesn't mean anything compared to what I've gained. Now, you need to understand something here. Um, the things in your life and my life that matter, they're important. You know, we don't need to live some ascetic hate the flesh, beat ourselves, have some, kind of, some kind of false. In fact, false pride is more ranked than just flat-out pride to me. It just stinks. So setting that nonsense aside, what, what do we learn from this? Um, what accomplishments, achievements, wh where you are today in life, you look back and say, yeah, I worked pretty hard, I got here, you know, and I feel a little good about that. I mean, most of us have enough insecurity in us to never really be pompous about it. But when I lived in Virginia, I, when early time, uh, there was early on there, uh, we had a new elder chairman named John Weitzma. And John um, was a very disciplined, godly man. And he invited me over to his house one time for a meeting in his man cave. I'd never seen a man cave before. I didn't know what that was. And just a nice place where you do whatever you want. That's what it is. Um, but he had a man cave downstairs. And as you walk down the steps, there were all these military plaques. Different groups he had commanded, different awards. Um, if you've never seen a coin shadow box, all the coins. Uh, I mean, it was just, I mean, the wall was like barely standing up with the weight of all. And I'm going down. This is the first time in his home. I'm going, John, John. Tell me about some of these. What's this one? And without even looking at the, what I was pointing to, he goes, oh, that's just an I love me wall. And he went on down to the office where we were talking about elder meeting stuff. And I was like a kid in the candy store going, oh, these are cool, man. These are shiny. These are neat. Let me talk, tell me about your toys. That's just my I love me wall, Michael. I never saw a guy that made a transition from a very prestigious military career to civilian life as dramatic as he did and as disciplined. And he was, there are a handful of elders that will always, I made a list one time of a hundred men I've worked with that were elders with me or above me. And John was the chairman of this board, huge board of this church I served. And the stories he would, the way he would teach me, he was so patient with this idiot. And he would teach me very kindly and patiently, sometimes very candidly, and one time I said to John, I said, John, you work harder than most of the pastors at our church. And he had a full-time job, too. And he looked at me and goes, Michael, what do you want me to do, go home and watch TV? You can see why he was successful in the military. 
He was a man with a mission. We got more done during his chairmanship than any elder I've ever worked with in my life. And you know, people didn't like him because he pushed too hard sometimes. I loved him. I loved him. We worked a plan. We got things done. We wrote things down. We accomplished things. His I love me wall didn't do it. He said, you know, I've been there. That was the last chapter of my life. Let's go do something for the Lord. Let's do something for his church. And he was always that way. All for Christ, Paul says. All for Christ, he lost things. For the sake of Christ, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ, that I might gain Christ through faith in Christ. These are little theological jewels you could spend a lifetime just meditating on these things. Paul said, this stuff doesn't matter if it's not for the sake for Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ is more value than any earthly thing we accomplish. Gaining Christ is more important than any worldly goal. And you know what? We don't get it by our efforts. We get it by faith. It's a complete upheaval of the way the world works. It's the complete upheaval of the way the Western Christian mind thinks. If in theology, do this, do that, compound interest, literally and metaphorically, these are all fine things. I'm not antinomian. I'm not, I'm, anti, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that stuff. What I'm saying is you and I need a recalibration. What really matters? We, we all want to look at legacy. I want my grandchildren to know and love Jesus Christ. Never thought I'd live in a culture or context where I'd hear myself saying what my parents said. Oh, how I worry about my grandchildren. Oh, how I worry about my grandchildren. The world that we're leaving them is an unmitigated mess. God's sovereign. Am I more concerned for the political environment and opportunities they have or that they know Jesus Christ and know him well? Paul says, been there, done that. For the sake of Christ, surpassing value of knowing Christ, that I might gain Christ through faith in Christ. I read over this list again and again and again, did endless word studies and phrases and syntax on these statements. And I just leaned back and I said, Michael, what do you do for the sake of Jesus Christ? What do you do for the sake of Jesus Christ? You know, I don't traffic in guilt and shame. I hate guilt and shame. But it caught me off guard. And maybe it'll catch you off guard. What are you doing that's not I, me, my, but for the sake of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Another thing that just sort of got me in a ditch, even last night reviewing all this, do you have any idea what it means to know him? We talk about friendships, common interest over time. That's a good friend. We have something in common. We do it together. We become friends in that world, that sphere. Very few of us have a friend that we do everything together with. Even married couples don't do everything together. Cindy has some of her things. I have some of my things. We do most things together, but there's some things she does, Hallmark-ish things I want nothing to do with. That's okay. Um... Do I really know her? 
does she really know me? On a human level, we can think through that. But boy, when it comes to this idea, do I know Christ? Do I know he's holy? He's perfect? He's patient? He's the light of the world? He's resurrection and life? In him there's no darkness? Do I know that he forgives me again and again and again and again and again and again? Do I know my salvation is secure because of what he's done, not what I do? Do I know that he's the eternal, literal king of the universe? Do I know there's no greater power, authority, wealth, knowledge, any measure on the planet or in the universe that comes close to who he is? And Paul says, the surpassing value of knowing him. I go back to this thing that's been plaguing me for the past eight, ten weeks. I don't think we really know who this Jesus is. That I might gain Christ. Here's the relief valve for me personally. It's through faith. It's not through accomplishment. It's not working harder. It's not being a better Pharisee. It's not even being a better Christian. It's through faith do I trust him. Paul knew Christ as Lord. He was overwhelmed with the knowledge of this. His pedigrees, his, his, all of his accomplishments in his world context were the top of the pack for the Judaizers that were attacking him. And he's saying, I count all that as loss. In fact, he calls them rubbish. Now, most of your English texts use a word like rubbish. Any uh, young life, student ministries, any, any young neophyte that is dangerous with the Greek text knows the word skubalon, and they make a big deal about the word skubalon. The word skubalon, translated rubbish in your English Bibles or trash, is also a word used for human excrement. And you can fill in the blanks on what word you would substitute for that. And Paul says, I, all that I count as... That puts some color on it, doesn't it? Paul considers his pedigree as rubbish. His manure for the pile. What Paul thought was gain in verse 7, he realizes was foolish. And what he sees as gain in verse 8 is Christ. One of my kids who remained protected and unnamed had uh, what seemed to be an endless supply of gum. Always chewing gum. If we went to the swim pool, this child had gum. If we were out in the park, this child had gum. If we were riding a bike, this child had gum. We didn't buy gum. This kid always had gum. One day I saw where this kid got gum. From the bottom of park bench tables. At the school playground. The swimming pool, kiddie pool, was, had this one table that there was more gum than table on the bottom of it. So whenever we went to the pool, it was like going to the candy store for this child. They had gum. And when we realized where the gum came from, we approached this poor child. So you realize this is like the most disgusting thing you could ever do in your life. They just smiled. They didn't care. Scubalon. Free, accessible, 
Everywhere you go, if you look for it, you can find it, I guess. <laughs> what did Paul gain? And what do you gain? To be found in him and the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Being found in him is a present reality. You, if you've trusted Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, you are in Christ. It's a present reality. How we understand that relationship, how we grow in that, is the art and science and theology of the Christian life. All your life. You never get to stop, do you? In contrast to that, doing these things, the law of Moses, the prescriptions, the ideologies of religious systems that do and don't, we've talked about many times, are a false, false teaching. They're a false bottom. They don't hold up. One is worthless and one is of infinite worth. If nothing you can do will make God love you more and nothing you have ever done would make God love you less, then it would follow that nothing you can do will make you righteous, but only he makes you and me righteous. And that's what Paul's driving at. Setting aside all the nonsense of the way we measure life and accomplishments and even good things mean nothing unless we appropriate this righteousness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we live such fascinating lives of doing good and important things, but sometimes we need to take a deep breath and take stock of why what we know, what we believe, what's important to us, and how does that weigh in Paul's simple observations about for the sake of Jesus Christ, about following us faithfully, you faithfully, about what it means to know you, the surpassing value, he says, of knowing you, that we would gain you, and that we live this perplexing and yet simple life of faith to trust you for what we cannot do, what we cannot see, to live faithfully in uncertain and difficult times. And as Paul reminded us, we will suffer loss, but we gain the whole universe in Christ. May we never take gum off the bottom of a table and know that you're the ultimate supplier of holiness, righteousness, and justice. We pray in Christ's name. God bless you. For those of you here, drive home safely. The rest of you have another cup of coffee at home. <laughs>